Welcome to episode 364 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Have you written a business book? Are you thinking about writing one this year? Two weeks before Black Friday in 2023, I committed to organizing a Kindle cross-promotion sales campaign for fellow business authors. The results were amazing. Over 50 authors and 60 books. Over 25 authors had a book reach the top 10 of at least one Amazon category. Six reached number two and seven reached number one. Why am I telling you this now? Because I'm going to do it again in summer around Amazon Prime Days. You can join the waitlist to find out when spots open up for authors. You can sign up for the waitlist at RobbieSamuels.com forward slash Kindle promo waitlist. Again, the link to sign up for the Amazon Prime Days Kindle cross-formation cell is RobbieSamuels.com forward slash Kindle promo waitlist. Now, you might be wondering, why am I organizing a free author promotion event? Well, it's because I I help authors build launch teams and I design and MC virtual book launch parties. This campaign was a great way to support fellow authors and has led to lots of inbound inquiries about my book launch coaching packages. Are you looking for support for your book launch or maybe a relaunch? You can sign up for a complimentary 30-minute book launch assessment call at RobbieSamuels.com forward slash book launch support. Again, the link to book a complimentary call with me around your book launch or relaunch is RobbieSamuels.com forward slash book launch support. If you want to know what it's like to work with me on a book launch, you can always ask today's guest. And if you need support getting your book written and published, I can help you find the right person in my network to guide you through all the steps of of that process. Just reach out to ask for assistance. You can email me at Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. Again, that's Robbie, R-O-B-B-I-E at R-O-B-B-I-E-S-A-M-U-E-L-S.com. Next, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest is a true powerhouse of talents and expertise. She effortlessly blends her roles as a word nerd and data junkie, a writer and a marketer researcher to create meaningful impacts in the worlds of business and higher education marketing. With an unwavering focus on customer insights, she helps organizations make decisions grounded in data and designed for success. 
Her achievements include authoring Think Like a Marketer, How a Shift in Mindset Can Change Everything for Your Business, a book for entrepreneurs and business leaders, and Commencement, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education, an unparalleled analysis of post-secondary education featuring interviews with 125 college and university presidents, which Forbes called, quote, the indispensable touchpoint of what's being said in higher education. She's the founder and president of Silver Tree Communications, a pioneering institute that helps organizations gain a competitive edge through data-driven storytelling that translates into sustainable, profitable growth. She's a leading author, leading authority on gathering and interpreting customer insights and helping leaders and entire organizations communicate for connection and meaning. She's a writer, a researcher, a brand expert, and a communications coach to the who's who at prestigious institutions. Her influence extends to top 50 research universities, law schools, medical schools, and Fortune 500 companies where her expertise in higher education, healthcare, and professional services make a significant impact. Please join me in welcoming Kate Colbert. Kate, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Kate, you are a powerhouse in all <laughs> kinds of ways, and I'm thrilled that you're joining us in your place in Wisconsin. I want to just dig right in. I mean, you know this is a show of building strong connections, and the, the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? You know, I think like a lot of people, I probably figured it out by figuring out first what leadership isn't. Um, you know, in my 20s and 30s, I worked for a lot of organizations and a lot of teams and bosses and um, who were pretty horrible um, and who were a little bit terrifying that those, you know, people joke about like, you know, not wanting to get up on Monday morning. And I spent, you know, a fair number of years um, in that kind of a situation and um, really sort of learning about leadership sort of in air quotes <laughs> and, and a command and control kind of way. And, you know, bosses who yelled um, and got in people's faces um, and called names and um, threatened to fire people and asked questions like when you came down with a cold and needed to go home because you had a fever, you know, stomped into the office of your vice president and said, does she have the stamina for this job? And that was a really difficult early era in my career. But previous to that, I had worked with some really great people. And so I knew they existed. I knew great leaders existed. And I knew I wanted to be one. And, you know, along the way, I tried to emulate some of the things about those horrible bosses, where I'm really embarrassed to admit, you know, that there was a period in my career where I was reading books with titles like nice girls don't get the corner office. Um, or, you know, I would say things at work, because I was trying to toughen myself up because, um, it was rough there. And, and I would say things like, I'm not here to be liked, I'm here to be respected, right. And it took me a long time, I think, to get to the other side of that to realize that it's important to be liked. Um, it's important to be human. And um, so, you know, I spent a lot of time surviving bad leadership, um, and bosses who were leaders, sort of in name only. And I started paying more attention to what kind of leaders in the organizations I worked for. Maybe they weren't my boss, but who did I wish I could work for? Mm -hmm. And as I saw what looked like great leadership to me, even if I didn't know how to define that, if I just said they seem really cool or they seem really nice or people want to follow them. Um, and I started paying attention and, and, and guess what? When I started behaving the way that I wanted my leaders to behave to me, um, interesting things started happening. P 
people started gravitating toward me. People in other departments started hanging out with my department. People volunteered to be on projects and committees in my department, even if they didn't have to. Um, and I realized that I didn't want to be anything like those horrible bosses. I wanted to be a great boss. And beyond being a boss, I didn't care about being a boss. I just wanted to be a really great person to work with. And I realized that titles just didn't matter. Um, and so, you know, I, I look back on it and I'm, I can have a lot of laughter around it now, um, looking at sort of those, you know, angry bosses. And, and interestingly, they were sort of invariably um, not just angry, but sort of older straight white men um, with gray hair and um, who sort of beat their chests at the top of organizational structures. And I knew that I could do better. I got really excited about wanting to lead differently. I wanted to lead humanely and I wanted to lead passionately and I wanted to be humble about it. Um, and I wanted to be really collaborative about it. And when I realized that it wasn't about whose name was at the top of the executive summary for the project or who was the project leader um, or who could hire or fire people, but it was about who could get things done and enjoy it on the way, um, I started having a whole lot of fun. And so I think it took me a long time to realize that leading um, is about others. It's not about self. Um, and for me, that's what it's really all about is about bringing my best self and my best talents to work every day and to the circles where I hang out. Um, but realizing that there should be no ego in that. Um, you know, even hearing you sort of read my bio at the, the top of our conversation, um, it makes me proud, but it also makes me a little embarrassed. Like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just this person, you know, in a t-shirt and jeans hanging out in our office trying to do good work every day. And um, and so I used to seek the accolades and now I'm proud of them, but I'm really just seeking to do good work with good people. And if I can mentor some people along the way and coach some people along the way, and if people will honor me by calling me a leader, then I feel like I've done something good. You have such raw honesty about everything you do. Um, this is another example, because I will tell you, over 350 interviews, and I can't think of a single guest who admitted to being, to emulating for a time in their career, the bad bosses that they had. And of course, like if you're trying to get ahead in, in a hostile work environment where, you know, this is the rules, like yeah. the game is rigged yeah. and being nice means being run over, like you yeah. will adopt a, an attitude uh, that will preserve your spirit, right? And and then you, it's hard to break away from that and try something different. So only by sh you showing us the journey did can we really appreciate the outcome, right? Because if you just see who you are today and just think, oh, of course she's like a nice person. <laughs> of course people follow her. Of course people want to be collaborating with her. But to know that you went through this journey of experience and identity and Re reforming what you really wanted that to look like um, to others, and then the work to make that happen and to leave those those awful environments and create new ones. Um, that's how we really can see you. So thank you for sharing that. I'm I'm kind of curious about the person Kate uh, that you are coming into all of this because I imagine that's kind of later in your you know you're already in a career by that point. So I always like to ask my guests about who they were as kids, you know. Mm -hmm. 
who were you on the playgrounds? Did you organize kids in the playground? We were sitting off to the side with a book. Did you get involved with lots of after school activities and clubs? Did you join sports teams? Did you run for student body? Anything? Yeah. yeah. Um, did teachers see potential in you? Did you raise your hand? Like, kind of what kind of kid were you back in that time period? That is such a cool question, and nobody has ever asked me that. Um, you know, interestingly, I was some of it, I think you could say, oh, yeah, I could have predicted where she'd end up now and others, maybe not so much. Um, you know, it was definitely a bookworm um, from the get go. You know, I was writing poetry in first grade and um, and was one of those kids with a really, you know, high IQ that teachers were obsessed with measuring that kind of stuff, which I have. That's a whole other podcast. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, the first time I was taking, you know, like, standardized exams designed for high school students i was like third grade um and so um so folks were always sort of picking my brain and sort of studying me when i was little and um but i love to read and i like to write even when i was really little um you'll find lots of pictures of me you know with bright red pigtails you know laying on my belly on the living room uh, shag carpet with some sort of book or a map or um, something trying to understand the world and um, in a bigger better way um, and uh, you know I was um, I was a little bit shy and a little bit anxious um, which is kind of how I was raised to be and um, we lived in a small um, sort of community I grew up on a lake um, and so I felt free in nature. So we were always, you know, swimming or boating or um, hanging out at the park. I was, you know, two two blocks from um, two different parks and right along the lakefront. And that was really fun. And, and yeah, and I don't think I was really, I don't think I had any natural ability to sort of draw people to me. I was, I was sort of Switzerland, you know, like I wasn't a popular kid, um, but I wasn't like, I didn't get picked on a whole, I mean, maybe a little bit, um, you know, in high school I was in the band. Um, so I'm a classically trained, uh, flutist, um, which is something I continued into playing in symphonies and college and whatnot. And, um, and so I just, and I was a smart kid. Um, so the homework stuff was really easy for me. And so I was always bored which was a little bit hard. Um, so the entrepreneur in me, while I never thought I'd become a business person, right? I got a whole bunch of degrees in English. I was gonna be an English professor like forever and ever, amen. <clears throat> that was it. And and I did become an English professor. <laughs> and, uh, um, and then very quickly realized that as much as I loved teaching other people how to write, I didn't love it as much as I loved writing. And so I needed to get back to that and I needed to make a course correction really quickly. But yeah, I was, um, um, I was spending a lot of money at the scholastic, you know, book fair and stuff when I was a kid. Um, and so the fact that I would end up writing and publishing books and owning a publishing company and um, living in a very sort of nerdy scholarly world, working at universities and advocating on behalf of them, um, in some ways is kind of not a surprise. Yeah, that part isn't. This classic book fair is both a throwback and my kids just had their book fair last week. So um, I know it's wild. It's totally wild. And we're big proponents of libraries and, and uh, thrift books online. And yeah. so we were like, you know, pick, tell us which ones. And then we're going to tell, we're going to give you this much money to spend. And then all oh, the other books, we can look to see if they're available on these other resources. Like you can get them to the library. Yeah. So we're trying to teach them like, not just be you know capitalistic about it, but it is a fundraiser. So we want to give some money and there's I other ways that. we're going to give money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just took, 
I just took my husband to the bookmobile for the first time. I don't know if you do you have those where you live. Not, not here. No, but oh I my gosh. So, you know, it's like a bus, but it's yeah. got shelves and it's a book. It's a library on wheels and <clears throat> they're very, very expensive to build and maintain. So a lot of cities don't have them because they don't often have the tax base or we're not, not for it. But um, I grew up with a bookmobile um, that came two blocks from my house, um, like parked in a church parking lot every week. Um, and so we walked down and we got, but we returned last week's books, we got new books. And, um, and I was just obsessed um, with books and reading them. And I would read them all like on the first day and then have to wait a week to get more. And, um, and interestingly, my dad was never um, generous about money, um, but it was the one thing if I bought a book, if I went and bought a paperback book somewhere um, and I showed him the receipt, my dad would reimburse me for books. And it was the only thing he ever would really pay for. Um, so that was interesting because he's not a book guy doesn't doesn't read so um very very interesting but yeah bookmobile my husband's I 49 and i just took him we were yep. we were foster we do foster um parent uh respite work and we had four little girls uh, all siblings come in one day and so i took my husband to the bookmobile so we could get books for the kiddos it's amazing <laughs> yeah what a little throwback for those who are listening who had their own experiences going to a bookmobile as a kid and maybe have the opportunity to do so with their kids as adults now um, but also just like that, you know, you were, you were just trucking along, you weren't making waves, you know, in school. Um, it sounds like college was a given for you. And when you were around 12, was, was the English professor a thing even, even then? Um, I think, I, I think I thought I was going to write the great American novel, you know, like I was going to be the next Judy Bloom, or I don't know what I thought I was going to be, but <clears throat> yeah, I think I thought I would be a writer. And of course I had no idea how the world works and, um, that, that, you know, creative writing doesn't always pay particularly well. Um, so business writing, I had no idea that I would, what kind of writing I would go into, but I think I always knew I'd be a writer and, um, I took some interesting sort of um, routes on the way there, but I have been a writer my entire career and, um, and sort of for different audiences and in different ways and I get paid in different ways. And, um, but yeah, I think I always knew that I would be putting pen to paper or fingertips to keyboard. Yeah. Right. Back then you probably couldn't have imagined. Um, it's so funny. I'm getting like, it's almost like having a producer in my ear, but I just got told that there is actually a bookmobile in Philly. I'm about 45 minutes north of Philadelphia, but now I know, and now I'll know. know. check that out. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> cool. And so those who are following along on LinkedIn can see the link uh, below, which is I funny. That. That's great. People are so responsive. <laughs> They're like, yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you, Jeffrey Klein. Um, so here's what I'm curious, like you go to college, you you have a very particular path in mind, you become the English professor, um, you realize that's not quite your passion, you really wanna make time for writing, and that I guess you didn't have enough time for writing while being a professor, because it's a pretty, pretty- Yeah, grading papers is a full-time job, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so how do you decide your next move? Like you're in your, are you still in your 20s at this point? I was, I was really young. So I graduated high school early. I graduated high school on a Thursday and started college on Tuesday um, and just, you know, barreled straight through associates, bachelor's, master's. Um, and so, yeah, so I was, um, I mean, I was 24 when I taught my first undergraduate <laughs> course um, and uh, 20, 26 when I started teaching at a really great community college and at Loyola University of Chicago um, in their English department. And so I was really young. Um, I blended with the students really well. And that was tough. So like, how do you 
dress for, to, again, and it's back to like, you know, I need to be respected, you know, versus being liked and um, all that stuff started, started early for me. But yeah, when I, you know, when I realized that teaching might be something I want to keep doing on the side, but that that wasn't what was going to pay my mortgage um, because it was an adjunct, um, which is a horrible term, by the way. So call your professors, your instructors, if you want to delineate part-time versus full-time, whatever, that's fine. Tenure track. Well, who cares? Um, are they a great teacher? Um, are you learning a lot from them? Um, the word adjunct is a really horrible word. And I think a lot of people don't realize that adjunct professor, the word adjunct means connected, but not essential. And there okay. are institutions, colleges and universities out there where 60% of their teaching force is part-time. And so to say that they're not essential is just a horrible thing. Um, but yeah, I was, it was hard for me. I thought it was a failure. I remember um, I was I'd been married for a few years to um, uh, husband number one, starter husband. And um, I thought, how do I, after I've told everyone that I was going to, I was going to be an academic, I was gonna be a scholar, I was going to be a professor, um, that I'm going to sort of turn tail and do something else. And I remember thinking, what will people think? As it turns out, nobody was thinking anything. Like nobody cares about what other people are doing with their career. Everyone's wrapped up in their own thing. Um, and so I decided I wanted to figure out how do I get my hands on other people's words? How do I start wordsmithing other people's stuff and getting to write my own own stuff? And um, this was back before you could work remotely. So I had to find a job locally to where we just bought a house um, and that wasn't easy to do. So I took a job, believe it or not, as a magazine editor at a high-tech magazine. Um, it, it got about as technical as it could get. So I was the magazine was specifically about not just about semiconductors, but about packaging semiconductors, like how they get encapsulated so they don't overheat. Like it was like the niche of all niches. Um, cell phones were just beginning to kind of be a thing. Um, and um, so learning sort of how they worked. And I remember going into the interview and chief editor, you know, sits down with me and, and says, you know, most of our editors are semiconductor engineers. Um, I said, uh-huh. And, um, and he's like, so tell me a little bit why, you know, why I ought to, you know, hire you when you don't have a background in engineering. And, and I said, that is a really great question. And I said, and I think what it comes down to is this, you have to ask yourself, would it be easier to teach a professional writer about semiconductors, or would it be easier to teach a semiconductor engineer how to write? And he laughed <laughs> and I got the job. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. It put me on a shy girl who was anxious, who like did was afraid to go to the airport. Um, I did 26 business trips in the first year at the magazine. So it was just, yeah, it was intense. Um, and I went, I was one of the only female editors in the industry. And so I would go to things like Semicon West or whatever, these gigantic industry conferences with 30,000 attendees. And people would see me from across a ballroom with a red, you know, press a ribbon on my badge and they all knew who I was. And it was, um, it was surreal. Um, I was the first journalist to break the story about the invention of Bluetooth. Um, and um, I had no idea really what it was at the time. I just had an inkling it might be important. Um, and, um, and it was really fun. And by the time I sort of left that stint um, in my career, people were asking me where I got my engineering degree. And so that was a big aha for me. And I think we all have had that as we have evolved in our careers, right? Is that we, you have this moment where you realize like, oh, I'm not a job title, right? You don't, if you're a magazine editor, you don't have to go to the next job as another associate editor or managing editor. 
you are a function, you are a passion, like what is it you want to do and what is it you're good at? And when I realized that I loved writing and I wanted to do that like 40, 50, 60% of my day, and I was willing to learn something new in the rest of my time. And I loved being a chameleon. I wanted to learn about other stuff so that I could write about it. Because what I discovered is that a lot of brilliant people who are so good at what they do, neurosurgeons or um, semiconductor engineers or you know um, plumbers or whatever, they're good at what they do, but they might not be good at talking about it. They might not be good about writing about it. And so they can't get their message out. I always say, you know, if Einstein hadn't been able to explain what E equals MC squared means, it wouldn't have been brilliant, right? And so when I realized I could be the communications conduit between brilliant people, medical breakthroughs, scientific in, you know, inventions, all these things, if I could be the voice of other brilliant people, that could be a really interesting career. And I, I figured that out when I was about 28. And that was the beginning of something really exciting for me. And now I'm not afraid to write about just about anything. Oh my gosh, there's so much good to unpack in that. <laughs> One, I have to underscore, you're the first journalist to break the story about Bluetooth before you really quite understood what it was, but knew it would be important. That line, that whole thing, I hope we grab it as an audiogram, because <laughs> that's such a great thing. I mean, I, I interviewed someone who was the first person to ever host a telesummit. So we we have some really incredible people on this show. Super nerdy guests you have. I know. And people that like, these are questions I never asked myself. Like, yeah. who hosts the first telesummit? You know, like, right. you, know, yeah. you never like wondered that question. Um, and by the way, like I, I researched it and it, her claim was backed. <laughs> so um, this is really cool that you, you took from this experience an epiphany that you were able to translate to other roles as opposed to just feeling like stuck in a position, you understood your sort of transferable skill and your passion and then how that might move forward. The fact that you were so committed to writing that you were willing to take on, like even applying for a job in a very niche, 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 you know, industry that you knew nothing about and probably couldn't have cared less about at the time. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, for, for you to like take that step, that says a lot about who you are, even as a, maybe, a, as you said, a shyer, maybe a more anxious person at the time, like you still were willing to do that. And that's something else I want people to hear and take away. Um, but that you, that you like took a step back and thought I could translate people's passions and expertise into something that other people can understand uh, because that's necessary and not everyone has those skills but I can provide that, I can be that translator. That's a that's like a brilliant way to sort of frame your entire profession, like everything you've done in your career. Yeah. And, and I have to give credit, Robbie. So to be, to be fair, I was not that introspective and I didn't understand the world that well when I was in my late twenties. I lost my job um, mm -hmm. at that high-tech um, magazine um, when the dot-com bubble burst, right? So we had been, this was, I mean, when you think about the fact this is like, you know, 30 years ago or whatever that was, 25, 20 years ago, um, 21 years ago. Um, and, you know, we would go out to Silicon Valley and, and 21 years ago, we were spending like five or $600 a night at hotels um, at like the most posh, you know, I used to go to events where, you know, if I was going to a gala event and I couldn't zip my own dress, like I would just call the front desk and somebody would come zip my dress for me. And that kind of, you know, it was these, this was the kind of life I was living because there was so much money um, in Silicon Valley. 
And then the dot-com bubble burst and the companies that were advertising in our magazines, which we were qualified subscriptions, meaning nobody paid for the magazine. If you were a reader, it was paid for by the, the advertisers and all the money dried up. And so we all lost our jobs. And um, and in that, um, which was a devastating experience, and it was, it was I was a country song, so I lost everything all at once. I was in the middle of a divorce, um, so I lost my, my husband, my house, my car, my dog, my job, you know, you name it, I lost everything. Um, and they hooked us up with um, some transition coaching, some HR um, folks um, who were going to help us figure out our next, our next move. And boy, was this woman speaking my language when she said to me, Kate, you should just grab a notebook and do some free writing. She'd you know, write her. I'm like, okay. Um, and write, just write a story about your life, like a, your work day five years from now. And I want to know everything. Like, what time do you get up in the morning? Where do you drive to for work? What does it look like? And I wrote a story. And in that story, um, I was working from home sometimes, which was not a thing back then, right? Um, I was um, learning new things. Um, and I wasn't writing eight hours a day. I was writing four hours a day. And it was through writing that essay that the epiphany happened where I was like, oh, if asked to craft, like, what would it look like, my perfect career? Um, it was not the jobs I was applying for. It was not the speeding train I was going to continue staying on. And so she pressed pause to have me write that essay. And it changed everything about my life. Mm -hmm. I had a moment like that when I was taking a, um, a class uh, about uh, sort of a, a leadership training for people. Most people were in their late 20s. I was the outlier. Uh, I was 36. So I was, I was up, like when, I, when we all went around the room and talked about like our history and our experience, yeah. people were floored by what I said. And I said, I got like eight years on most of you. Right, right. Eight years from now, you'll say this too. And so yep. most of them were writing their 10 year plan and I wrote a five year plan. And five years later, like, I found that notebook, you know, like eight or nine years later, but I found that notebook and I did, like, it was like you said, I wasn't working at a job. I had my own business, like how I spent my mornings, like, you know, all the stuff that, that I, I think it's such a powerful exercise to take a moment and think about that big yeah. picture. Um, and, you know, there is all quantum, you know, where you put your energies, like, where you put your focus and put your focus, where you put your energy. I think some of those things are true, but you also start to notice that there's possibilities in front of you. Uh, and then you start to choose those possibilities because it seems like a, you kind of remember that. I think it's it's an incredible um, skill to like not just stay on a path, you know, but to yeah. like continually carve new ones. And, and I that, think that's writing it, yeah. <laughs> And don't you think writing it down matters? Like it's not so it's like I think when people talk about like manifesting or whatever, that, that's a little kind of woo-woo for me. Um but I do think that when you create some sort of master plan where you write it down, where you're like, this is the kind of, this is what I want to do. This is, I want to have time with my kids in the morning. I want to be able to make a cup of coffee and read the newspaper before I go to work, whatever, you know. Um, I think if you write it down um, and it starts to become a little bit of a master plan. And like you said, then as opportunities um, come up or ideas come up, you know, you know where to pivot, you know where to run, you know what to do, um, what kind of work is is worth chasing. 
Um, and for me, I've done some things that I'm sure people have thought were really crazy over the years. I mean, I've started businesses and then things about those industries have changed and I've had to, you know, and everybody hates the word pivot since the pandemic, um, but I've had to make big shifts in my businesses and my careers and I've had to shut things down and start new, new things. And, um, and yeah, the me 25 years ago would have been terrified by the things that don't phase me. I mean, I just started a nonprofit, you know, like, uh, so yeah. Yeah. I'm actually curious, when did uh, Silver Tree uh, Communications start? Like how long have you been running this iteration of your business? Yeah, uh, 20, uh, 2002. So um, yeah, so okay. 21 years. And it was, uh, you know, it was, you know, they say, you know, necessity is the mother inv of invention or whatever. And it was when I lost that job um, uh, in the um, in journalism space. And I was like, oh, crud. And I was having, I lost my job on a Friday and I was having eye surgery on Monday. And um, so didn't, you know, I had my surgery and I had my follow-up the next week with the ophthalmologist and um, went back in. He was taking a look at my bloody eyeball and, um, and he's like, so how are you doing? He's like, you lost your job. That's so horrible. What do you do? Like, what do you do for a living? And I told him I was a writer. And the ophthalmologist says, hang on a second. And he goes out and he tells his nurse to tell the other patient he's going to be running late. And he comes back into the exam room and says, okay, so here's the thing. He's like, I'm like the world's leading authority on how to train the eyes to work with the brain so that hand-eye coordination is better. And he's like, and I'm the visual fitness expert that I work with the U.S. bobsled team and the U.S. ski team and, you know, the Milwaukee Brewers and the Cincinnati Reds. I work with baseball players. And, um, and he's like, and I get asked to write articles and books and stuff, and I can't write. And he's like, could you write that stuff for me? And so that was it. Like, I literally started a company, like, days after being laid off. Um, and by the way, I was also very creative about that magazine I had just worked for. When they fired me, they didn't say that I wasn't allowed to have connections with their clients or their advertisers. So I, this, you know, the internet was in its infancy, so it was hard to hunt people down. Um, but I, I went back and I found all the people at the big semiconductor companies um, and all the big tech companies. And I reached out to those advertisers and I said, I happen to know how to write an article about your inventions to get it on the cover of these magazines because I used to be an editor at those magazines. You should have me write your articles. And so I went and sort of poached all that business back um, and then started helping them. And, and I didn't just get them into the magazine I worked for. I helped them go after the competitor magazines too. And, um, and again, and just like a little girl when, you know, when I was that pigtailed girl on my belly on my mom's you know living room floor um there was me at 28 with notebooks on my belly on my mom's living room floor because i was living with her because i just left my husband and um and figuring out um I, i'm like what do you charge i remember i was charging 40 dollars an hour it's <laughs> funny to think about now like like wow that was too low um and um yeah and got a phone number and came up with a business name and um, started a business. And, and I've worked so cool. other jobs and run that the business on the side, but I've been running Silver Tree full time um, for, oh gosh, about 11 years now. Yeah. So you and I met at the National Speakers Association conference and uh, shout out to Kathy Fayok because really she was incredible. Yeah, she does an incredible job bringing together authors at that event and um, hosting gatherings and I think I remember I remember meeting you at one of those gatherings initially and I didn't have a book at the time and it felt like 
I want to go, I have a book in me and I'm like working on this book. So like, I want to go hang out with authors <laughs> and people were showing up to this gathering with like their books, like all stacked up. And I was like, yeah. I'm going to come back one day with all my books stacked up. And uh, little, little did I know that here I am. Here you are. Three books <laughs> under my belt. <laughs> Uh, and you you have that magical touch too. You work with people to help them take the ideas from their heads and, and bring it onto paper. You've done that yourself a couple of times. I most recently got connected with you because your book around higher education, um, I offered to help you with your virtual book launch party. And that, by the way, that was really the beginning of this becoming a new part of my business. Like it's been on the side, like a hobby, just a thing I did, but um, I so enjoyed it. And I've done like five since. Oh, that's uh, cool. And now it's a bigger, bigger part of what I want to do next year. It's like, I love working with authors, help them with their launches and their launch party. And we could yeah. not have done that without you. I mean, we could not. I mean, if I could give like a little commercial for you, man, you know, my co-author and I, and um, we had all these people who wanted to speak at an event and, you know, and um our book came out on Thanksgiving day. Um, and we had this like really audacious idea, like we're going to throw an event, like, r like a couple days before Christmas and people will come. <laughs> and, um, and they did. Um, but we learned a lot about, you know, uh, you know, if you get, you know, 600 RSVPs and, you know, 80 people show up or something, right. Cause people, people will say they're coming just to be supportive. Um, but it was a phenomenal experience. And I remember um, how smooth that was. Like, I have no idea how to, you know, bring, you know, silence this person and bring this other person's video, you know, on screen. And I mean, just it was the production quality of it was just phenomenal. And it really, it really put us out there. I mean, the, the book, I think, really speaks for itself. But the fact that the first time we talked about it publicly was in this virtual event that you helped run for us. Um, and we had other speakers, you know, we had a keynote speaker and we had other, you know, two other speakers. And um, I think there were a total of six of us who spoke at the event and there were games and there was, you know, it was crazy. And um, people still talk about it. You know, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the book next week. And, um, and people still talk about that, like, oh, I was at your book launch. That was so cool. Um, and interestingly, sometimes the quiet people are your biggest supporters. And that was an interesting thing to learn that there were people in the audience who did not ask questions, who did not, who I didn't even know were there until I saw the, the uh, guest list later, um, who have been big supporters and are buying copies for all their colleagues and whatnot. So thank you again for that. It was a really remarkable experience. I love hearing this. I love your success. I love, um, I, I, since I've done this a few times, one of the byproducts that I wouldn't have thought about, but it makes sense, is that I've met really interesting people who are guests of the author, and then oh, they're on yeah. my podcast, and then we create a relationship separate from all of that, and like yeah. that started to happen. So um, yeah, really, really interesting that um, this thing that I I kind of became known for within NSA, and it was almost like I was better known for that in my chapter than the thing I actually did for money, because um, <laughs> yeah. I would donate packages for like the auction and stuff, and people would stand yeah. up and talk about my launch. And so, um, but now I'm I was like I'm ready, and so you know what I'm actually doing is I'm partnering with uh, different organizations that work with authors, whether they're doing PR or uh, maybe they're doing like the launch or not the launch, but the yeah. A publication, 
uh, or helping people write the book. Uh, so yeah, I'm like in the middle of all these conversations with different people and uh, that's, it's really exciting. So thank you. Like yeah. our random conversation over a year ago. <laughs> like, well, we like, should, and I should have you, if you want to come on, we'll do something cool with our authors. So, you know, I acquire, I own a publishing company, but I also acquired another one. So we've got Oh yeah, I think 250 authors or so, and so have a conversation. You know, Look at that. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, we'll, live on air. We'll hey, put you in front of them. I promise. <laughs> that's cool. So, um, I'm I'm actually curious when you talked about your authors and just your network in general. Um, I see you as a really well connected person, and I'm curious as you design that like experience of reaching out and connecting with people, you know. <laughs> there's the inner circle of people you know you're going to stay in touch with, but then there's sort of the outer layers of people you see once a year at a conference or you work with them five years ago, but you haven't had a reason to since, but you enjoy each other's company. These are people you would like to stay connected with. How do you think about that? Any habits, philosophies, practices for, for staying connected with your larger network? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn, LinkedIn, and LinkedIn. Um, you know, I really can't even imagine my career without LinkedIn. Um, I, I did some data crunching a few years back, and I think the numbers would actually be higher now. Um, but several years ago, I was able to track 85% um, of my company's revenue to connections on LinkedIn. And I would I would say that that's probably closer to 95% at this point. Um, and either that, that either means I first met someone there um, through some sort of connection or somebody read an article I posted there or I read something they wrote and we connected in that way. Um, or they were somebody I worked with, like you said, you know, somebody I had a job with 10 years ago and, and we've lost touch and then you post something or they post something and you say, oh my gosh, it's so great to see you. And you, it's like bumping into people, you know, at, at a cocktail party. Um, and, and we sort of rekindle those conversations about what are you up to? Oh my gosh, I didn't know your company did that. I'd love to hire you. And <clears throat> so LinkedIn is really, um, I actually think of it right now. It's I love that you asked me about like what kind of kid I was on the playground um, because I think of LinkedIn as sort of my midday recess. Um, it is my workplace playground. It's where I go to connect um, and to communicate for connection and meaning. Um, I do not sell anything on LinkedIn. Um, and the fastest way to irritate me is to send me a connection request and immediately inbox me something about like, you know, do you need help with your blah, 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 you know, um, I've never done that to somebody and I would never do that to someone. Um, but, you know, yeah, LinkedIn is really sort of it for me. And I'm not probably as active as I should be there, but I would say that um, the release of both of my books, um, LinkedIn was really pivotal for spreading the word um, and getting, and it's fun, you know, seeing people take scribbled up sections of your book and photograph it and put it on LinkedIn and write their own articles about, about the topics that you're exploring. And so that, that happened a lot with commencement. Um, my co-author, Dr. Joe Salustio, um, and I, and he's very, very active, um, on LinkedIn and he has a very successful podcast, which was really sort of the core for the book that we wrote about the future of higher ed. And, um, it's been it's been really fun um, just sort of watching people talk about our book um, and popping into those conversations. And we've been pulled from there. People keep saying, would you come talk at our university? And so the way we kind of go from the page to the stage almost always has LinkedIn in the middle. So somebody reads the book, they talk to us on LinkedIn, they hear other people talking about the book and they say, can you come speak? Right. And so we've you know, we've spoken to Ivy League um you know, doctoral grads um, who work in higher ed, you know, big groups of um, uh, of folks at 
we had one university that they were going to invite 100 people and they were going to keep it limited and 963 people showed up. Um, and so, and we've just had a, a total blast, but LinkedIn. And I would also say that, you know, I, I don't even have to think about trying to stay connected with my network because I hire them. I refer to them. Um, you know, I involve them in my projects. Um, you know, I support their efforts. Um, I read their books. I review their books. Um, I go on their podcasts. Um, and, you know, and so for me, it's just become really natural. So the people who are important to me in my network are sort of just an extension of my company and my career and my life and my, and, and they've become friends. And so what I do not do, um, that a lot of people used to do, um, when it came to networking, um, was I do not let people take, I, I don't go out to lunch, like with people that was like, I remember how much time I used to waste on that. Um, and I do not let people pick my brain over lunch. Um, I remember people thinking that they could buy you dinner or they could take you out for drinks um, and not pay your consulting fee. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that um, saying no to those offers does not make me not a nice person. Um, it makes me a person who respects my own value. And um, so, yeah, I mean, if I got paid for all the times that somebody wanted me to pick my pick my brain, um, I'd be retired on a yacht right now. <laughs> and uh, um, so I don't do that. Um, I am, however, having dinner with a new client um, who um, is based in, in, in Texas and happens to be in Chicago this week. So they're jumping on a train and I'm driving down to Illinois. I live just across the border in Wisconsin and we're going to have dinner. And so... Um, I really cherish getting to meet people or visit with people face to face now that we don't do a whole lot of that. Um, but yeah, no, no brain picking. Um, that is just a, that is a, a thing of the past. Yeah, totally get that. I remember, um, I would schedule to go meet with people and then the form, like I wouldn't have their phone number and like yeah. we couldn't find each other. And then I finally had a form so people could give me their information. And so that at least that didn't happen as much. But all that time, like getting there, yeah, getting back, and now yeah. it's like we just get a Zoom call. Yeah. Now, when I first started scheduling Zoom calls, my default for my calendar was one hour, and I don't know how long I had that before I switched to thirty minutes. And yeah. so now, almost every call is thirty minutes yeah. for people who I don't yet have as clients. And I'm like, that saves time. <laughs> yeah, me too. Short meetings. Yeah. Short meetings. Shorter meetings. Yeah. And you said something about LinkedIn, and I just attended a really incredible session by Richard Bliss, who is a LinkedIn expert, who is pretty well known within the National Speakers Association community because he's presented at a few of our conferences, and he came and spoke at the NSA Philadelphia chapter last week. When I uh, I got a chance to actually do a little five minute um, member you know, showcase uh, last minute. And I talked about my croissants versus bagels, uh, body yeah. language tip, which, you know, became the basis of my book, my TEDx. But, uh, but so Richard Bliss, uh, he said, communicating on LinkedIn, the priority is in the conversations. And so he made this point that I never really thought about when you comment on someone else's post, your network sees your comment. So yeah. like write something thoughtful because if you just write congrats, like, yeah, your network's going to see congrats, but uh, getting a chance to like tag the author of the post so that people know who you're talking yeah. to and they can click through and find out more, comment something about the post, and then maybe give your context point of view or perspective so that people also learn a little bit about who you are in the world and why you found that so amazing. It adds value to the conversation on that post, but it also brings your 
network maybe into the conversation and that if the author then replies to that comment, it boosts the whole thing even more. And yeah. so it's made me just more mindful about how I comment and then making sure I respond to the comments. Um, so that was just a really great takeaway. That's, that's a great tip. I saw someone do something last week that I have to share because it's so brilliant. And I know mm -hmm. that your listeners will love this. Um, so I commented on something I'm always, because I'm a higher ed prognosticator, people are always asking me about things related to higher ed, of course. And, and I commented something kind of off the cuff a few days ago on LinkedIn. Um, we were talking about the fact that there are currently 780 private colleges and universities in the United States where the graduation rate is 50% or less. So a coin toss, like the money that you're going to throw into this and you've got a 50-50 chance of graduating, which is a horrific thing to think about. And so I, I suggested a bunch of analogies, right? You know, like, you know, congratulations, you just spent $1,100 on an iPhone and <clears throat> it doesn't work. We'll just keep trying to reboot it and do that for like four years. And at the end of the four years, if it doesn't work, well, you know, maybe owning an iPhone just wasn't for you. Like, right. And so, and so I wrote all these analogies um, that in no other industry would we tolerate a 50% success rate for something that we paid $50,000 for or more, quarter of a million, whatever the case may be at some colleges and universities. And my friend, Gary Stocker, um, who is sort of the leading authority on school closures and whether or not a college or university is viable for the future, he has a thing called the Vi College Viability App. He has a podcast and he took those analogies that I wrote and he used that tagged me as the lead in to promote his next podcast. And I started listening and sure enough, he spent like the first three minutes or five minutes of his podcast sharing my analogies and talking about his thoughts about those analogies and why he thought it was funny and why he thought it was interesting. And he used that as the lead in to his entire episode. And I thought that was cool. Like I didn't even have to go be interviewed. I just, dashed off something on LinkedIn that resonated with somebody to the point that they used it in their podcast and then tagged me. And so he was able to, you know, tuck into my network, my network thought, what is this crazy thing Kate's saying? And it really sort of spurred an interesting conversation. So that was, that was something I've never seen anybody do is, is essentially sort of copy and we, we, I used to joke, I, in higher ed, there's a association called CASE, the Council for the Advancement and Support of Education. And we always joke that CASE actually stands for copy and steal everything. You go to the conference and you learn what other schools are doing and you copy and steal everything. Um, and I think we can do that on LinkedIn. And and what Gary Socker did there was really interesting is he saw me say something interesting. And instead of nodding and smiling, commenting and moving on, he thought, how can I take that as a conversation starter and build on that in a different forum off of LinkedIn and bring that into his podcast, which I thought was really brilliant. I was also picturing it as memes as yeah. you were describing all yeah. this. Like, oh, those would be great memes if someone was artistic, like yeah. our cartoon strips even. <laughs> right, right. Like, there's just, there's, I mean, yeah, I, people who are creative don't just like a post. They can really get engaged. And that's, that's awesome that that happened. And that you, the conversation got off of LinkedIn even and continued out into the world. Yeah. So speaking of, of next steps and conversations, I have my favorite wrap-up question for you. But first, we're going to pause for a quick word from our sponsor. All right, here's my wrap-up question. I know we're staying in touch. So this is not about if we see each other a year from now. <laughs> we are going to definitely be talking a year from now. I know I'm going to see you between now and then. Um, so if we're you know, connecting a year from now, and I'm asking you about the year you've just had, what are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Oh, gosh, you know, so I'm going to be doing something really different this year. Um, 
I just founded a not-for-profit organization called EDS Guardians Incorporated. And in record time, 32 days flat, um, we not only got everything incorporated, but we got um, our um, uh tax determination from the IRS as a 501c3 nonprofit organization and uh, additional designation as a public charity. And um, I have a connective tissue disorder that I was born with called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, or people just call it EDS. Um, And it's um, not just about um, joints that dislocate and stretchy skin. It's even more complicated than that. And um, we started a foundation, my husband and I, um, and some phenomenal people on a board um, to figure out how do we be a patient-to-patient, caregiver-to-caregiver, pay-it-forward organization that helps EDS patients who lack support to get the vital medical treatments that they need. And so we're going to be figuring out how to sort of step in. Um, and, and, and I got some of this idea, by the way, from the gentleman who runs that organization called Stand in Pride um, for um, folks who maybe have family who don't support them if they belong to the LGBTQ community and are having a wedding and their mom and dad won't come. And, and this gentleman has a group where he, he'll, he'll walk people down the aisle or he stands in at graduations. And I'm just so blown away by that. And um, so we are creating an organization where people can stand in as caregivers or financial benefactors to help people get the medical care they need. And so we've got our first board meeting coming up and um, we just designed our logo and um, and uh, we're looking forward to, I have no idea what philanthropy life is gonna be all about. Um, we just did our first medical mission and um, learned a lot along the way. So a year from now, we're gonna be talking about hopefully some lives um, for people who live in complex, chronically ill bodies like mine, um, did we make some people's lives better? Um, did we save a life? Um, and I look forward to talking to you about that. I can't, I can't wait. I support you, everything you do. I follow your journey. I'm excited for you and all the people that you're going to help and all the people who help them who are going to be touched by that experience. It's a, it's a very lofty, worthwhile goal. <laughs> Uh, and you and your husband are the two to really kind of step into that and make it happen. Uh, how can people find you and follow your work? Um, so LinkedIn, um, so I'm really easy to find on LinkedIn, just slash Kate Colbert. Um, if you're interested in the book about the future of higher education, um, you can find us at commencementthebook.com. And if you're interested in um, the book for entrepreneurs and business leaders, which is Think Like a Marketer, um, you can go hunt that down at thinklikeamarketerthebook.com or just katecolbert.com and um, would love to kick off a conversation. Brilliant. We'll put all the links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Kate, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I adore you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kate. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 364. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership 
and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained the professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On The Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.